I had a uh, pretty amazing childhood. No, I don't have many things to complain about. It was pretty smooth sailing for me. Uh, one of the lucky ones. But I did have these problems. And uh, these problems would, would rise up and become very large in my mind. And I would dwell on them and just be completely consumed by trying to find a solution, trying to look for a hope of how to overcome this problem. I remember my mum used to cut my hair, uh, which was very thrifty. And uh, one time in 1995, she uh, cut me a hair. Really, really good job. Straight across at the front, nice straight line. Uh, Straight lines are good when you're cutting hair. And then straight down at the sides. And then it went straight back, just for a moment. And then around the years, that was the, the curved piece of the, uh, of the masterpiece. And uh, I don't know about you guys, but in 1995, a particular movie just came out. I had no idea, because we didn't watch a great deal of movies, and it was rated above what we were allowed to watch. Um, but you might remember it. It was called Dumb and Dumber. And it literally just came out that week. And as the name suggests, it's about two guys that aren't particularly smart. And and both characters, uh, one of them, Jim Carey, he had a haircut which, by chance, went straight across at the front and straight down and straight back. And I remember rocking up at school and I was like, oh, no. It's a big problem. Suddenly everyone was calling me dumb and dumber. And uh, it wasn't good for my, my rise up the social ladder, the climb up the social hierarchy. It was a huge problem. I remember that, that and many other problems just became so large in my mind. I was totally consumed by them. I remember getting home and I was like, we just need to solve this hair problem. It's all I can think about. All, all I can think about is the problem is I look like Dumb and Dumber. It's, and the solution, I don't know exactly what it is, but something up here needs to change. Totally consumed. And then the, the crazy thing is, by the time I was 14, I was cutting my own hair during school into just crazy things. Anything I could think of. Just, today I'm going to have a giant mullet. Okay, done. Today I'm going to have short hair with train tracks. Did that as well. Got in trouble. And then I completely bleached my hair and looked like Eminem. So probably four or five years later, I didn't care at all. I found it humorous that people would laugh at me with, with funny hair. So what seemed to be a huge problem suddenly was totally insignificant in comparison to the other problems in my life. I'm in John, the Gospel of John. And turn with me to, to chapter 5. I'm going to do a character study on a man in chapter 5. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. John's punctuated by these Jewish festivals. They often just really give us easy ways to to track where Jesus is moving. Now there is, in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades, which are like verandas. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralysed. And they waited 
for a moving of the waters from time to time. An angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after such a disturbance would be cured from whatever disease they had. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learnt that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water stirs. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. The day on this, uh, that this took place was the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said, pick up your mat and walk. So they said to him, who is this fellow who told you to pick up your mat and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said, see, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defence, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. I'm going to pray again. Yeah, Father, help us to see what's happening. Sometimes these stories seem a bit strange and disconnected. Uh, Please guide me as I try to explain what's going on here. Uh, But please help us to learn. Open our eyes and and soften our hearts so that we might learn from this character and learn from what happens in this story. Amen. So like I said, I'm I'm going to do a character study on a person, which is going to be the paralytic, which is difficult because we know him as the paralytic and then halfway through the story I have to just call him the man. We don't have a name for him. But he was paralysed for 38 years. That's a very tough life in the time and the place that he was living. He didn't receive great amounts of welfare. He probably received none. He would just have to beg. Uh, He didn't have a wheelchair. We know that all he had was a mat. It's a very, very tough life. And we find him by a pool. It's not just any pool. It's, this pool has been, uh, it's been searched for for many years. We, we didn't really know where it was. There's a pool with five verandas, which is, five verandas is, is an odd number of verandas, literally and figuratively. And it's an odd number, and so people were looking for maybe a five-sided shape of some description, and they couldn't figure out what was happening. But in uh, 1888, during the restoration of St. Anne's, which is like a crusader's church on, uh, right near the edge of Jerusalem, they, they uncovered a pool. And as they kept digging and uncovering it, they figured out it's, it was kind of like a trapezoid shape, like an off-square, and it had two levels. And they are like, well, it can't be... This, this pool that John talks about. But then what they found is these two levels were divided 
by a veranda that went in between them. So one pool flowed down, cascaded into the other, and there was this dividing veranda, which in total makes a five-veranda pool, uh, which really fits perfectly this description. And so everyone, most people agree that this, this is probably the pool that they were talking about. This area also has, uh, they've uncovered a lot of symbols and a lot of, a lot of things that indicate that there was, there was an idea that there was healing powers around this area. And particularly in these waters, there was a healing power. That chapter, that verse uh, 4 that I read, that's actually, you might not even have it in your Bible. So if it wasn't there and you're like, what is he reading? That's because they've actually taken it out. Some people leave it in in brackets. But that was added in the, the newer and less uh, reliable translations of John. And it's clearly a scribe's note. So the people that were copying it added an extra note so that we knew what was going on because he had more information than us. He knew that there was this expectation at this five-rounded pool for healing when the water was stirred. I personally tend to believe that maybe it wasn't a thing that was actually happening, but it was a myth that that they were looking forward to. But I definitely don't rule it out. It could have definitely been an act of God that occasionally he would do these things and and bring his grace and love and and heal someone. But there was definitely this expectation. And this this paralytic, he had put his hope in these waters. His greatest problem was that he couldn't work and then he just put all his hope in these healing waters. He was totally defined. Like the position that he sat in the location that he was stuck and what he did all day was totally defined by this great problem he had, that he couldn't walk. His life consisted of just laying there, of just waiting and longing, dwelling on this problem, hoping for a solution. He was lonely and desperate. We know that when the waters were stirred, everyone would, would be like, oh, maybe this is the time, quick, get, get in the pool. But he can't walk. But not only couldn't he walk, he didn't have even a friend that might help him in. We see this man is, is lonely and desperate. So Jesus sees him and he knows him. Seems like he just sees him and knows how long this has been happening. His constant theme in John as well, we saw with Nathaniel. Jesus says, ah, here, here, is, here is a man, an Israelite, in whom there is no Jacob. And I saw you under the fig tree. And then, then we see with Simon Peter, Jesus sees him and he says, Oh, Simon, you're, you're a shaky man, but I'm going to make you a rock. I'm going to call you Peter. Sees him, sees his heart, sees his past, sees his future. We see that with the woman at the well. He sees the woman at the well, knows her hopes to, be, to know God and, and be able to worship God, knows her past with her, with her husbands. So he does this same thing. Jesus sees this man and, and, and seems to just know him. By looking at him. And um, then he asks him this very, very profound question. Do you want to get well? Seems kind of obvious. (laughs) Seems kind of obvious. But I think it's the first hint at what Jesus is doing. He's setting something up here. He's setting, the rabbi is always setting up a lesson. He's always going to be teaching something. And he does it often very subtly with few words. He teaches a great amount. I think... It's a look forward and backwards, particularly in John. Jesus is saying, what do you want again? What is it that you're after? Oh, you want to walk. Well, if only you knew who I am and how much I can give, 
You might take a little bit longer before you finish with your requests. Jesus has so much more to offer this man than just walking. We see in John 1 that Jesus is the word that became flesh. The word that spoke everything into existence. Nothing exists without him. We also see this same thing with the woman at the well. Jesus says to her, if only you knew who I was. If you knew who I was, you'd ask me for living waters. So Jesus is starting to set up a lesson here. Then Jesus heals the paralytic simply by speaking. The word of God heals with the word. It's all these signs, these miracles are signs given in John for who Jesus is. But as I'm doing this character study, I want to look at another thing that these miracles are. They're also tastes. It's not just a sign of who Jesus is, it's a taste of who Jesus is. For some, during the Gospels, we see that it's a taste of what their faith will bring them. These people already have faith, and Jesus is giving them a a taste of what their faith will eventually bring them. This is when he uses the phrase, and it's common in the Gospels, your faith has healed you. So your faith has made you well. We see it with a paralytic, a different paralytic in, in Matthew 9. Jesus says, your faith has healed you. We see it with a bleeding woman who touches Jesus' cloak. Your faith has healed you. We see it with, his, with a blind man who's calling out, have mercy on me, son of David. Have mercy on me, son of David. Everyone's like, shush. But Jesus is like, oh, no, I've got this. Heals him. Says, your faith has healed you. These people clearly had faith. This blind man straight away followed Jesus, already believed, already seeking the son of David, the promised Messiah. And then he was healed and followed. It was a taste of what his faith would eventually give him, a complete restoration. All these people got sick again. They all died. They all died. But in that moment, they had a taste. They had a touch of heaven a taste of the resurrection, the eternal life that they'll get, that their faith will bring about. This paralytic is different, but totally different. He shows no recognition of who Jesus is. He has no faith that we can see. He doesn't even have, it seems, any understanding of who Jesus is. doesn't seem to have any desire for the things that Jesus is about. There's no real indication that He's, he, he desires a lamb to be slain for him. There's no real indication that he's seeking a lord, a king. It doesn't seem like he wants to receive Jesus as these things. In John, we've seen true seekers who are looking for a Messiah, ready to accept as soon as they find him. We've also seen people who just look for miracles. And then we've even seen others who are questioners and doubters that now seem to be moving to be persecutors, haters. But this man isn't even any of those. He doesn't even call out to Jesus. He doesn't even seem to acknowledge his presence. He's totally just consumed by his problem. Laying there, possibly staring at the waters, hoping for a solution. This... Man is receiving a taste from Jesus, not because he has faith, but Jesus is giving him a taste in the hope that that transforms his thinking, 
transforms his mind. It's an experience given to change his mind, his attitude. You know, I'm a bit of a social outcast even now because I've developed in, uh, a particular uh, belief that nobody likes, people are very uh, critical of, and they, they look down on me. I'm really the dregs of society. Uh, it's, I don't like dogs. I really just don't like them. And I'm sorry, some of you want to tune out for the rest of my sermon. You don't want to listen to a person, maybe, who doesn't like dogs. How could you not like dogs, Kyron? I'm a terrible person, it seems. And there's people who think that maybe, if only I had an experience, a taste of the glory and the beauty of dogs, they, that my mind would be changed. I would suddenly see how great they are. And they always think their dog is the dog that will bring about this great change. Oh, Kyron, but if you'd met my dog, if you only just experienced him, if you had a taste of how wonderful he is, when he slobbers on your crotch, when he lifts his leg in inappropriate places or leaves a little nugget on the lawn, or when he barks loudly, you just, oh, then your eyes will be open and you will see. It will tra- that moment will transform the way that you view dogs forever. I mean, it's a funny example, but this, a similar thing is happening here with Jesus, except it's more impressive and more important. It's a more righteous cause. Jesus wants to give this man an experience that changes his thinking. Changes his thinking. He gives the man a taste of his glory and grace that he might change his mind. He crashes in, uh, totally uninvited, into this man's life. And he goes, let's see if this changes the way you see the world. Let's see if this changes the way you think. Suddenly, just with the words spoken, this man's greatest problem, the thing that's shaped his whole life, the thing that he's dwelt on and hoped for relief from, gone, solved. In an instant. And then Jesus disappears. This man doesn't get much time for that to sink in before he's, he's confronted by the Jews. And I'll do these Jews, which are actually the Jewish leaders. Usually John just calls the, Jew, the Jewish leaders the Jews. But I'll do that character study then on the next round when we complete chapter 5. But he doesn't get much time for it to sink in. He's confronted by them. And then it seems he goes back to the temple area. And Jesus is looking for him and he finds him. He finds him at the temple. I believe he's, he's looking for him and he's finding him to p- complete this lesson. He's given him a taste and now he wants to test to see if, if that's done anything. He wants to continue. This is it was 1.0 was the healing. This is 1.1, the second part of the lesson. He says, see, you can walk. Seems like another obvious thing. See, you can walk. But then he goes on to say your real problem is not dealt with. You might be able to walk, but that's not actually your greatest problem. That's not your real problem. Your sins are the problem. They've led you to this dark and lonely place. They've always been your greatest problem. They've always been your most pressing need. You are still in sin. Not right with God. 
your greatest problem still remains. And because it remains, Jesus said, worse is coming. Worse than 38 years without walking. Worse is coming for you because your greatest problem still remains. This problem that consumed you, that took all your focus is gone. And now can you see? Can you see the real problem? And there's another question that Jesus is asking without speaking. He's saying, do you perhaps, maybe, can you think of someone who might be able to help you with this problem of sin? Is there someone, maybe you've met someone recently who's clearly from God, the one you've wronged? Have you perhaps had an encounter with someone recently or heard of someone who has the power to to save and transform? Have you had a taste of his glory and grace? And so I just kept asking myself the question, has this man, has he? How's he going with his test? This taste? Has his thinking been transformed? And I'm actually not sure. I lean towards probably not yet. I'd hope that he'd follow Jesus and listen. And we'll look at a discourse next time in in chapter 5 where Jesus really brings out some of the major points of who he is and what he's going to do. But I don't think I can see any transformation. There's no confession of sin. None. We see when, when Simon Peter... He, he sees the miracle of Jesus with this, this amazing catch of fish. He has a taste of who Jesus is. What does he do? There's straight away a confession of sin. Depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. But we don't see a confession from this man. And we also don't see the response that Jesus gave Simon Peter. After Simon Peter's confession, Jesus says, Do not be afraid. But we don't see Jesus giving this. There's no confession and there's no comfort. There's also, there doesn't seem to be any repentance. There's no sign. John gives us nothing to show that this man did actually leave his life of sin. We see it with people like Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Jesus is showing him his love and his grace and he's had a taste of who Jesus is. So he pays back all of the things he stole and some. His clear sign of repentance But we don't see that. We also don't see the kind of response that Jesus had to Zacchaeus. After this, Jesus says to Zacchaeus, salvation has come to this house. Salvation has come. There's no confession and no repentance and no response from Jesus that would indicate that the problem has been solved. Also, he goes to the Jewish leaders and informs them of who Jesus is. It's hard for me to see that any other way as just ratting him out. Maybe it isn't. I'm not sure. But it doesn't look good at the moment for the paralytic. It doesn't seem like he's quite grasped what his greatest problem is. 
John, the beloved disciple, the one who wrote this gospel, wants us to learn from these characters. He wants us to learn so that we might believe, that verb, believe, 99 times in the book of John, and have life. He wants us to compare ourselves to these characters. He wants us to use them as warnings and examples. And so I ask the question, is your sin your greatest problem? Sin is abhorrent enough that it separates us from God. God cannot stand to be in the presence of sin. It separates, puts space between us and God. Sin is terrible enough to warrant eternal judgment. Is it not the source of our greatest problems? Is a sinner not the problem? Are you not the problem? Or like the cripple, are we consumed by other problems that are not so great? Perhaps the cripple had developed this this mindset of being a victim. When things are tough, we're so focused on the problems we think we have and the hardships that we, we see ourselves as a victim and we don't see ourselves as a perpetrator. I believe Jesus was trying to snap him out of this state. No longer are you a victim. You are a blessed man who has more than he ever deserves. Now can you see your problem of sin? I fear this is a time of a great falling away from the faith. I think in my life there's been a falling away generally. I think the generation before me coming out of Billy, Billy Graham crusades and a few others was a real revival and a turn towards God after a preaching of, of sin and God's righteousness and his judgment but also his love and his mercy and his grace. I know in my youth work there's so many people, so many characters just like in the book of John in my life that I've seen them with some belief maybe and then time or even not much time has proved that it wasn't a saving, lasting belief. People ask me, was this person really saved? Did they really believe? Did they really repent, take hold of Jesus in faith to save them? I don't know. But there's one thing that becomes more and more clear to me the more I reflect on it and the more experiences I add to it. We need a moment. I had a moment followed by many moments. And these moments are even hard to describe. But I was 15 when I had my first one. I was opposite to the cripple. I had an able body that was suddenly crippled, not a crippled body that was suddenly able. And I was lying in hospital in bed. And I probably should have felt sorry for myself. I probably should have felt like the victim, unlucky. But for some reason, what I felt overwhelmingly was this was something that I totally deserved. In that room, I remember thinking, I am the problem. I am what's gotten me here. I I didn't actually at that point even want to get well. I don't know why. I just didn't even care. I just wanted to be loved and accepted by God again. I just wanted this problem of sin to be dealt with. 
And my life just keeps getting punctuated by these same moments. And whenever I see someone fall away, I look at their life and I'm like, yeah, I remember that first chat with them. That moment just wasn't there. Or maybe I wondered and then those moments didn't come afterwards. They became like the cripple, focused on other people's problems or sins. Focused on problems that weren't them, their sin. We see it so often, and I've preached this many times. In Isaiah, we see this is a natural response to an encounter with Jesus, a taste of who God is. We see it in Isaiah 6. Isaiah's taken up before the throne of God. In amongst his glory with the angels. And what does he do? Straight away, oh, woe is me. I am ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips, but my eyes have seen the Lord Almighty. We see it with Simon Peter. I've already given this one. The catch of fish has a taste of just who Jesus is like. He's like, oh my goodness, this isn't an ordinary human being, this is God. And he falls down before him. And he says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. The frightening thing is this crippled man had a taste of the grace and glory of Jesus. But there was no realisation of his sin, no repentance, no need for a saviour. That is frightening. It is frightening that in church, and sadly I think it becomes typical of church, there's just an apathy towards sin. There is no comfort in scripture for someone who does not take sin seriously. And we can just be so like it. For me, it became so abundant when I I took sexual sin in my life seriously. After that journey, I feel God gave me a burden to take others to to help others to take this sin seriously. And I've encountered a lot of joy doing that with people who are responsive. But generally, in the church, what I've found is apathy. By and large, apathy towards sin. We all have bigger problems, you know, like COVID or a vaccine or World War Three, And we're all talking about these. Meanwhile, there's sin in our lives unchecked. Are we, as a church, like a crippled man, just so consumed by a problem that isn't actually the real problem? In that state, you don't accept Jesus for who he is. You might accept him as a miracle worker or a healer. You might accept his healing or his good things. But you don't cling on to him like a saviour. You don't cling on to him as someone you desperately need to save you from yourself, from your sin. I'm going to pray for us. Oh, Father, open our eyes. Give us a taste of your grace and your glory so that we might know our greatest problem and our most pressing need is to be rid of sin. Oh, help us. 
Help us to know this so that we might put hope in the lamb that was slain for the sin of the world. That we might put hope in the word who speaks new life into us. The one who brings us living waters to cleanse. Amen.